1: Hey gang! If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know last year I went all in on saddle hunting, and all my saddle gear comes from Tethered. And I wanted to tell you how I made my decision to use Tethered, as I didn't just haphazardly put my faith in their gear. If you know anything about me, I I kind of go through a painful process of researching things before I kind of take the plunge. And that was the exact case uh, here. Whenever I was thinking about moving into saddle hunting, so first for me weight mattered. Um, the saddle, you know, the Tethered saddle is the lightest around. It weighs in at a whopping 15 ounces. There's also the other benefits of being able to hide behind trees away from deer, you know, being able to get into trees in and out of, you know, areas super quiet and super stealthy. And I go through all those benefits with Greg uh, from Tethered and Podcast 102. So if you haven't listened to that, you might want to check that out. Uh, second, they thought through literally everything in the full package and accessories uh, of for saddle options from years of being DIY saddle hunters themselves. So whether it's platforms, ropes, They just know what will work from years of testing and years of uh, hunting out of saddles. And most importantly, they're here to help. Um, There's a bunch of ways to get into saddle hunting that are somewhat unknown if you've never tried it. And this was the case with me last year as I didn't know anybody who saddle hunted and didn't have anyone near me to try a saddle and kind of see if it was something that was a good option for me. Uh, So this was me specifically last year. And Tether can help with this from everything from choosing the right size saddle to how you place your feet uh, for different shooting shooting scenarios while you're in the saddle, and different climbing options. You name it, they can help. If you're interested in getting into saddle hunting or want to learn more, go to tetherednation.com, that's T-E-T-H-R-D-N-A-T-I-O-N.com, and follow them on YouTube. This podcast is also brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. We recently released a new product, the High Country Roast, and this coffee is lightly roasted Ethiopian Harar that is great for cold brew and is especially tasty and pairs well with the recent heat waves uh, we've all been experiencing. So visit us at SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up some High Country Roast or check out our Country Roast and Breaks Brew. No matter the coffee you choose, we always donate 10% of our profits back to conservation organizations like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Foundation, foundation qdma and the nature conservancy you choose which one receives the donation at checkout let's support conservation together one cup at a time by visiting skullbrewcoffee.com hello and welcome to the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast i'm your host clint campbell and you're listening to episode number 131 Today, we are pushing ahead with another DIY report as part of our Look Back series that we're doing with Greg Litzinger. We're also joined by my good friend, Wilson McSwain, so stay tuned. All right, all right what is going on everyone happy wednesday to you hope you all are doing well out there hope you're avoiding the heat in some way shape or form it 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 seemed like the heat lit up a little bit last week and i was kind of starting to allow my mind to drift toward fall a little bit because i think we had one day where it was the high of 79 degrees and i was like man i could get used to uh used to this it was nice and cool in the evening like 60 something it was almost starting to feel like uh, we were making a turn but uh uh, we were just fooled, I think, because the it, the heat seemed to crank back up as it got later in the week, and then of course this weekend it was pretty uh, pretty nasty hot. But that did not keep me from getting out into the woods and doing a few things. I managed to uh, show a little restraint and left my trail cameras alone, uh, so that was good. There is one that I am going to have to check relatively soon because it's it's on a new piece. It was one that I put out late, and I will have to probably check it maybe next weekend because it'll be have it'll have been soaking for just I think a little over a month. I've never really been on this piece other than when I did a uh, did a scout the one day and so I'm not sure what's in there not sure if the cameras even in the right spot so uh probably need to get in there and give that a check so i'm not letting it sit in a, in an area where i'm not really getting any inventory and I'm, ho- I'm i'm holding out hope for this uh this particular spot as well just uh, because it's really close to my house and so it would be really convenient uh you know if if it did have some good deer on it cuz uh it is just right around the corner from where i live and i could probably get some hunts in there in the morning or in the evening after work uh, especially the the morning i think would be doable no matter what time of year but the evening i might even be able to steal a few evening hunts after work um Early in the season, before it starts getting uh, getting dark too too early, but I did get out. Uh, the big thing that I wanted to do this past weekend was, you know, as I'd mentioned in previous podcasts, is I'd been messing around with you know, my climbing situation and, and how I was going to uh, climb this year. So I had been playing around with some steps. I, of course, cut some sticks down, some some old lone wolf sticks that I had, uh, and cut those down. And I needed to go out and kind of get a gauge, um, you know, throw the saddle on and, and and do some climbing just to kind of get a feel for how much height am I going to be able to get? Uh, which climbing situation do I like the best? What's going to fit me the best? Um, you know, because I, I, I do like the sticks just from an ease of use perspective. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's it's less to fool with. Um, and, and so I, I, I do like that. Uh, but it's a little bit more to carry and I'm not, you know, look, I'm not going to complain necessarily about the weight difference because it's not a huge weight difference between the two, um, between my steps and and my sticks, you know, maybe a pound or two, which, you know, isn't going to, isn't going to make or break me, but it's just more about the packability of them and, and more about the bulk. Um, and, and so I I was leaning more towards the steps, but I really, I've been playing around with the Nader and Swader method, which. You know, just going to be completely transparent and honest. You can call me a sissy if you'd like to. Um, But I'm comfortable using that climbing uh, method until I get to probably about 15 feet. For whatever reason, I don't know. It's just like I have a hard time kind of you know, there's a, uh, you kind of have to lean back into your, into your lineman's belt and kind of put all your pressure there to kind of get enough room to get your, you know, for me, it'd be my right knee up to get my Nader up on top the, on top the step. And I just about that height is where I start to get, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I, I start to get a little nervous and I don't trust myself and I don't trust my footing. Um, you know, as, as I'm have, you know, one foot in the, in the sweater. And so, I was like, well, maybe this method isn't necessarily, you know, right for me. Um, and so I'd done a little digging around on YouTube and found a, a method, and it might sound. Kind of <laughs> might sound a little counterintuitive or stupid, but I found this method called the Kane method, and it's a guy whose last name is Kane, and that's, and I think he came up with it, and that's why it's named that. That's all the more information I have of its origin. But essentially, what you're doing is you're using kind of like a, you're kicking off the tree, and you're kind of doing a pull up and pulling yourself up on, onto your, the different steps that you're setting. And you're using, you know, what he's using is a riggers belt around his waist. And as he gets up on his first step, you know, I'll try to explain this without a visual, but you're at your tree, you tie your first step on about waist height, and then you tie another step on about a, as high as you can reach. So for me, you know, I'm five, eight, so it's for five, eight, five, nine, whatever the case might be. I'm going to give myself an extra inch. Um, so when I hang my step, you know, it's going to be just a little under seven, seven feet. And so what you do is you grab onto that top step at seven foot, you use the tree and kick off the tree and pull yourself up, put your feet on that first step, which was just a little over waist height. Um, when you do that, the idea being that when you pull yourself up, that step that was at seven foot ish should now be somewhere close to around your waist. And you use that rigger's belt with a carabiner and you clip yourself into it. So now you don't need a lineman's belt uh, to, mo- to worry about moving around limbs. So now what you do is you set yet another step that is at, you know, uh, as high up as you can reach. And you're still clipped into the step that is at your waist once you get that next step set up above your head you now take your tether you clip onto that with a carabiner and then kind of tie into your bridge and now you're kind of secured to the tree all the time you grab that step unclick your carabiner from or unclip your uh your riggers belt kick off the tree pull yourself up to the next step and then you clip back into your riggers belt and then you just kind of do that and work yourself up the tree and what i need is probably a total of six steps um ish to get myself close to probably like 18 feet there'll always be one step that i wouldn't use it would just be a handhold and then you know another foot or two um to hang my uh, to hang my platform and then i'm right around that 20 20 foot mark ish um i used that yesterday and practice with it a couple times up and down the tree and i gotta tell you i really liked it um for whatever reason what i'm saying is you might call me crazy is i actually felt way more comfortable and way more safe um and secure actually using that method. I was always constantly tied to the tree. Um, I wasn't worried about ropes or anything getting in my way as I was climbing, like I was with the lineman's belt when I was using the Nader and sueder method up. Um, so that I think for the steps are really going to work. My only concern is once it gets to be later in the year and I'm now putting, uh, putting layers on and maybe I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to bend as much. Um, you know, and then maybe my hands are cold or whatever the case might be. I'm not sure how well that method's going to work, so I did have my sticks with me, and so I did a kind of a, an additional test run with those to kind of figure out I wasn't getting quite as much height height as I wanted with just the three short step or short sticks. So what I ended up doing was uh, kind of came up with you know. I ended up getting some, uh, some am steel looping it around my, my bottom tree bracket. And I set my short stick as high as I can possibly set it basically to where my top step, which is a double step is at about seven foot as high up as I can possibly reach. And then what I do is I take my sweater and I clip it over my, um, uh, my foot peg on the left side. And then I push up into, you know, into my sweater and then I actually have that piece of amstill that's hanging off the bottom of the uh, the bottom tree bracket. And I clip into my nader with the bottom tree bracket with the amstill that's hanging off of it and push myself up. And then I can stand on with my left foot. I'm able to then stand on the first step and then climb to the top of the of the stick. So that will actually get me to seven foot with one stick ish. And then what I do from that point forward is I basically set each stick at about where the top will be about, you know, five foot um, from the the top of my first stick, right? So I'll have, you know, the top of the next one will be about five foot above that. So with three sticks, it allows me to get to about 17 foot, which is, which is plenty. Um, and then, you know, another foot or two with, um, with hanging the plat, with hanging the platform. I use a lineman's belt with that, uh, that mode of climbing. So, you know, always attached to the tree. And I felt good with that because, you know, as I was talking to uh, some buddies, it's like I'm willing to kind of take a little bit more risk lower to the ground, of course, because there's less of a price to pay if I would happen to slip. um So that first step being kind of a, a stretch, I'm willing to make that, you know, take that risk for that seven foot jump right off the bottom, and then from there I take a more measured approach and and am using just the sweater, um at that point um, to to get my way up. And so then the second and third stick, what I'm doing is I'm basically taking a carabiner, sliding it over snug up against my post on the uh, on the step on the left hand side you know as close to the center as I can possibly get it and then using my sweater and then I'm able to with that sweater I'm then able to step up with my right foot then onto the bottom step of the uh, bottom step of the second stick and then the same for the the third stick so after I kind of worked through that those were the two ways I was comfortable so I feel like once it starts to get cold, That that might be the way that I go, just because uh, I'm more comfortable and 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 just more experienced with climbing with uh, with with, uh, sticks. Um, and so I thought that that would be a nice kind of happy medium to, you know, more of a earlier season, lighter weight, uh, less clothes, less bulk kind of approach where I can travel maybe a little lighter. And then of course I do have a fourth short stick if I need it, you know, that I can bust that out as well. If I'm just finding that once I kind of put the clothes on, um, you know, the layers on that three sticks just isn't doing it for me anymore. I can add the, add the fourth one in and I'm, and I'm good to go. So that was what I did this weekend. It was a scorcher. It was hot. I probably lost about 10 pounds out in the timber uh, sweating, but it was well worth the time spent to do it because the last thing I wanted to do was get to season and not really have you know an idea or a plan or have a level of comfort with whatever mechanism I was going to use because up until that point, I was really kind of leaning toward the sticks um, and then I had learned of that cane method and this was the first opportunity I had to try it and it was easy and tying the steps off, um, just in practicing yesterday, I got pretty quick. Um, so that wasn't, uh, that wasn't too big of a, too big of a deal. So I think I got some work, good work done yesterday. Now, you know, unfortunately it's, it's not any work that, well, I mean, I was going to say it might not be any work. that's going to help me kill any deer this year, but you know, I think anything you can do this time of year to make yourself more efficient, quieter, stealthier, and just overall more prepared, I think all kind of plays into, um, you know, giving yourself better chance to have a successful season. Um, There was one piece of information that, you know, uh, I'll have to have my buddy Tom back on at some point to talk about it, but he and I went shed hunting this year, had him on, I think after that we found uh, sheds together of a deer um, in a particular area. And we kind of agreed that we were going to try to possibly, you know, kill that deer together this year on film, um, you know, depending on what we each had to hunt. You know, if he was one of the bigger ones that we, or, you know, one of the bigger or older, more, I guess I should say more mature deer for this area, we, you know, we might try to hunt him and kind of. One of us hunt, one of us film. And the good news is, is he showed up and uh, we have a visual of him, a visual idea of him where we thought we would have a visual idea of him. So that is good. Um, so there's, you know, at least on, on my calendar right now, there's two, two good deer that I have that have shown up in places where I expected them to. Um, there's a lot that can change between now and then, um, but at least, uh, at least we have a visual proof of life that uh, we're, we're making some right choices uh, for the beginning part of this year. And we'll just have to continue to see how how things play out and, and what changes once the uh, once the shift happens. This place actually has a bean field that's probably about 850 yards away. It's along some railroad tracks and uh, some glassing occurred. Actually, Tom did some glassing. I hadn't had a chance to get out there and he was texting me while I was, while he was there. And, and these deer were just literally using the the railroad tracks to kind of travel to and from. So they're following that edge you know, deer like edge, whether it's a railroad, <laughs> railroad situation, or whether it's a edge of a swamp or, or whatever the case might be, or a field edge or whatever, um, deer like edge. So they're using it in this case. Um, you know, and they're kind of fulfilling, I guess, some of the assumptions that we had, which is, which is good. We're not going to count our chickens before they're hatched, but, uh, you know, feeling good about the possibility of, of doing that hunt. But Not going to belabor this up front any longer. Uh, We have a cool show today. This is a continuation. I think this might be part three three, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but it's a continuation of the look back series that Greg and I have been doing together. And if you haven't listened to the first two, I would recommend going back and checking out those previous two DIY report, uh, episodes that we put out. And this is, you know, an instance where Greg and I are taking some, well, particularly Greg kind of giving me some sections of podcasts that he's listened to over the course of the past couple years and saying, Hey, these are really interesting Pieces of information I'd like to expand on them, and so what we're doing is we're basically listening to the original guest, the the commentary that they gave, whether it's a tactic, a strategy, you know, a philosophy, or whatever the case is. Um, and Greg found it interesting, and so then we're listening to that clip. And then he and I, and in this case, our, my buddy Wilson joined us as well. Um, you know, we, we got together and we talked about these, these different things as to whether or not they applied to us or how we've applied these before or whether or not we've seen something different. Um, so it's a really cool show today. I hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. All right, folks. We are back. And you're listening to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And I have a couple buddies with me here. I have my uh, esteemed colleague. You know him. You love him. There's a lot of fanfare over this guy. He's one (laughs) we've got the the bow hunting fiend Greg Litzinger uh back with us for another DIY report doing our our three-year look back that we you know we did two episodes already together. And then we also have my good buddy Wilson McSwain. What's going on, man?
2: I'm not esteemed.
1: You are esteemed. Okay. You're steamy. Yeah. Um, we actually just got done shooting some bows in this, like, Africa hot heat, which was, which was really pleasant, but,
2: uh... I've that's... never been to Africa, but I would assume it was, like, well, today.
1: Yeah. Toto
3: says it, it rains down in Africa,
1: <laughs> so I just assume it's muggy <laughs> and hot, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's only 85.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: So we're off to a whiz-bang start, but for yeah. everyone out there listening, if you haven't uh listened to the previous two, this is, uh a project that Greg and I kicked off together, which was to kind of take a look back at all the podcasts that we have done over the course of three years and pull bits and pieces out of each of them um, that we think are interesting or that, you know, uh, have merit or different strategies that you know that we've used in the past and kind of take them and talk about them in, in, in terms of you know how we've might have used them if they worked for us if it didn't work for us did we have to adapt them maybe because the tactic or you know that we were picking up from somebody uh, might have worked really well in, say Iowa or wherever. Uh, But we're hunting on the East Coast or New Jersey or Pennsylvania. And so did we use something similar? (laughs) The Beast Coast. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so this first uh, clip that we'll listen to is actually from my buddy Matt Eagleson, who is a Pennsylvania guy through and through. Uh, You'll be able to tell by his Appalachian accent that he's a Pennsylvania guy. Uh, more Pittsburghese might be more appropriate way to kind of uh, explain it's, his dialect. Burghese. Burghese. <laughs> Pencil tucky. Uh, <laughs> Pencil But uh, what he's talking about here is, you know, summer deer patterns and using trail cameras, which is pretty appropriate. And then we, uh, for this time of year, and then we will dissect in conversation.
4: From a long ways off, we could see these deer, you know, in the middle of summertime in the middle of cornfield coming out and, uh, so I decided to pull all my cameras from one property and to put them all in. I put four cameras out in this one property. Well, it's it back in our ground, and it's all mountain ground. And uh, <laughs> for real, I put them out, and I, I let them sit. I knew the deer were there. I was I was taking full advantage that no one was else was in there kind of screwing around in the summertime trying to get bit by snakes or whatnot, you know talking to work buddies and stuff. They're like, how can you go all summer without checking your cameras? I'm like, well, I'm just hoping they're there, you know, because I know they're there because you can see them.
1: Right. So you could see. So what was your vantage point for being able to see that they were there? Could you see it from, from your house?
4: No, you could just see them from the road. That's okay. how. That's how, you know, but you know how deer are in the summertime. They're kind of like, what we call in Pennsylvania their summer pattern they're not really worried they're not really worried about traffic or whatnot and you're talking five six hundred yards away so you throw a spot and skip on them deer they're not really i don't know they're not worried so right. i let it soak i put my cameras out there and let them soak i did not i, I knew them deer were in there and as long as no one else is in there, it's kind of one of the areas, too, because this is kind of a controversial situation, too, because, you know, you, you, you hunt an area like around a town or whatnot where it holds big deer, they can be used to humans, and they can be used to fuller trails and mm-hmm. used to trucks. Well, I hunt an area that they're not. Right. So I just I took full advantage that I was hoping that no one would be in there screwing around whether they'd be checking cameras or just fooler riding or whatnot. And maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but, uh, I stayed out of there. All right. So as I'd
1: mentioned, that's my buddy, Matt, and he's really talking about, you know, how he's using his cameras in the summer. And this was actually, I want to say two years ago, he killed, uh, I forget how big it was. I think it was in, it was a mid one forties, eight point. So it was a big deer that he was watching. And what he was saying in this clip, really what he, you know, gives a lot of credit to being able to kill that deer was is he, he knew the deer was there he had cameras on the deer he had visual of the deer and he basically just left the spot alone and i think it's a good topic for this time of year as we're yeah. recording this we're in july you know this will probably come out late july um but a lot of people have a hard time when they put cameras out just let let, them be. letting them alone right let and the so
3: cameras do their job right
1: and so i know greg you you just recently—I think we mentioned it in a previous podcast—when we were talking about velvet, like you just recently started using more summertime yeah. camera data, that's yeah. something that you hadn't done in the past. So, yeah.
3: just—I'm not a big camera guy, uh, even during the season. If I do run cameras, like I said, they sit, they just sit. I'm, I'm not interested in the intel on that camera usually for this year. So, I mean, that, like that last clip, the last clip—the guy just knew the deer was there. No need to go into that area and him because. Deer that's been around, it's got a few seasons, be it, you know, 100 inch deer or 180, whatever it might be. A three- or four-year-old deer that's got pressure a few seasons, he knows what's up. If, you know, he never encountered human scent there and all of a sudden he's got human scent, odds are he's going to skirt it or you're going to put him on, you know, high alert and he's just going to either avoid or go into, you know, (laughs) go into hiding. And you can spend all summer long shooting your bow, scouting, doing whatever you need to do. And opening day comes, he's already on to you. Later, see so yeah, a sign or right, you know. Yeah. So just leave it, let your cameras do the work, you yeah. know. And if you're that itchy for information, you know, get a cellular camera, you know, right. spend yeah. a little bit more money, and let it do the work for you, or go in and it's kind of yeah, even now you, you look at the uh, social media, everybody's out at this, this heat wave, everybody's setting cameras, everybody's on this, you know. 10 years ago, you, you only went out in a rainstorm. Windstorm, yeah. you know, to, to cover your track. Now people have forgotten all that stuff, it seems, or or if just fallen to the wayside. And they're just, I'm just gonna run and put the cameras out. Even now, I put out cameras. I got three cameras I want to put out right now. It hasn't rained when I've been off. So they've been sitting down in my green room waiting right. for a rainy day and I'm off. I'm not gonna risk putting that deer like, oh, I don't encounter humans here whatsoever. Cause I'm kind of aggressive with my cameras placement, right. you know. So I'm like, why give, why? You know, tip the hat to the deer, right, and they're already smart enough as it is, you know,
1: well, I think a lot of times people ruin a hunt during the summer before it ever happens, you know what I mean, it's like, and then they they'll wonder why this deer shifted, maybe he shifted his range because when he went hard horned or whatever, yeah. maybe he was going to transition anyway that's that's a possibility, <clears throat> right, but you're definitely you're definitely not doing yourself any favors by going in and checking, and I always say, and we said this when we were doing the velvet fest one, where it's the camera data that you have today, right, that say, you know, our season here in the eastern part of PA for, for Wilson and I will come in, I think it's September 21st, I think. Is it the 21st? Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Yeah. And so we're still, you know, more than like two months out, essentially, right? And so any of the data that is there today will be there at the end of August, Mm-hmm. And you'll have all the information to look at, unless you're worried about your card filling up. If you're on this, you know, I totally get going in and moving them as we hit like August and start to move them where you're going to find like more scrape areas whenever we get into the season. So you can maybe leave them alone until that period, right? You have to kind of play both halves of the halves halves of the game. I used to be really bad at checking my cameras way too frequently. I now more so will let them alone. I think I mentioned on the last session we did. It's like. I had a couple cameras on new pieces. So I, I let those soak for about a month from the beginning of June into May to like the very, like right around the 4th of July. And the only reason I checked them was because I don't know anything about the property. Mm-hmm. I have no clue what deer are there. I have no clue if I'm even hanging cameras in the right places where I suspect deer to use these certain terrain features or whatever. And I was really going in more begrudgingly going, I don't really want to put pressure on this property, but like, I got to know whether or not I'm, at the right places because if not, then I need to move my cameras again. Otherwise, you know, like back home, the property, the swamp, I put a camera in there, like I won't check that swamp camera till probably last week of August, just to see if the deer that I had in there last year were in there. The property back home, I'll check that probably the like the uh, first week of September. I'll check it. And then I won't look at it again until I hunt it in October sometime. Yeah.
3: And, you know, we got an early season in Jersey, uh, second week in September. So, the deer are still in the summer. So, we have a chance of killing, you know, a possible velvet. Right. Uh, a lot of people do. So, I do get people's itching to go check their cameras. Just be diligent. Just wait. Wait for those rainy days. Let yeah. the scent wash out. Those deer aren't really moving. Yeah, are you afraid to get wet? I mean, wear a rain jacket. You know, it's really? not really not that bad. <laughs> or a garbage you know? bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Old school. Yeah. You know.
2: What do you think, Wilson? What gets me? It's like if you can see your cameras from the road, it's a great opportunity to take an evening yeah. and sit in your car on the road Yeah. and not worry about getting in there and busting them up. When you can just sit in your car, eat yeah. a Cliff Bar. Yeah, <laughs> and- I love those <laughs> Cliff Bar. <laughs> and watch them from the road. Like yeah. there was times where I was like out. Got off work, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go check a camera. And it was late, and I pull up, and I can see my camera, and I'm like, oh, I'll just sit here for the evening. I have a little time. Right. It's so much easier. For me, it was like new properties. I'm so pumped to see what's on it that I've messed so many opportunities up because I'm like, I got to see what's on it. It's been out there for five days, <laughs> you know? Right. And right. then you pull it, and you're disappointed because you're like, I should have left it out
3: there longer, yeah. you know? Yeah, like said, and... You know, even summer in Pattern Deer, there's they have a, a certain path they take. You know, I, I look at it in a circular fashion. Very rarely do they come into the field at the same time or into the oak flat, whatever it might be eating on. It might be a three week schedule that the deer's on coming through an area where you could possibly low impact camera thing. So if you put that camera out, let it sit for two months. If he's in there, odds are you can at least get one picture of him, you know, right. or a glimpse of something. But if, if you go in a week or or, or two weeks, you know, he just might have been, you know, over here that day or something. And so, I
2: I've you, heard a lot of guys who they check their camera and they go, oh, he's gone, yeah. because he was there for three days in a row yeah. and then he went nocturnal, <laughs> quote unquote. Right. You so know? what?
1: So what about like so this instance here, right? Like because I think the other thing is too is like you make the argument for me. Just use my. In, situation where it's some some new pieces where i'm trying to get some data some intel right and i'm going i gotta know so i either let them soak until september and then i walk in there and i look at the camera and i'm like there ain't shit here right or you know or the inverse which is like you got a bunch of deer and then you're really you're really stoked but you're really kind of you're taking a big chance Mm -hmm. at that point right so you kind of have to check so the inverse of that is that you do go do a preliminary check right and you got a big deer and then all of a sudden, dudes want to go in and see like what that big deer is doing like every other week because they're like, I got a big deer on camera, right? Because I got this. I, yeah. Guilty. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> also, if you set your cameras out, leave them. July. July 4th weekend. Usually you can tell what deer are going to blow up, what deer are going to stay mm-hmm. small. Yeah. No sense going there in June, you know, numerous times. Yeah. You know, July. July. It still gives you plenty of time if there's nothing on that camera. There's something on the camera you go, all right, that's worth shooting. And then maybe I'll right. invest some time. If it's not there, you've got time to put elsewhere, right. you know, and invest your energy elsewhere. Because if you're looking for a particular size, you know, some guys need a, an inch. I'm looking for 140, 150. That area might have, you know, hit, he might have got hit by a car. You know, yeah. he might have got like, killed the previous year. You might have found his horns, but he could have been hit by a car. Who knows? He might not be there in your in the old hunting you know, right. summertime hunting season so if he's not there you got you have know, time to move on but yeah going I mean, there and blowing it out you know in june and july is
1: pointless yeah so i was of the version like wilson said he's guilty of like, i got a, got a big deer in there and i want to see him yeah i have a good deer in this new piece that i put a camera on which i'm pretty excited about if he sticks around who knows that remains to be to be seen yet but I'm not going back in to check that camera until I get to, like, later August, right, to where I have just a handful of weeks before the season will open. And when I go in to do that, I'm looking to make sure, one, that he's still around because I think I have a really good spot to picked out to, to hunt him, two spots. But then the other thing I'm going to do is as I'm moving cameras, it's like I'm going to move cameras specifically because I think I know how he's traveling based on the camera data that I got. And so I'll do that all at once. That way I'm only making one trip in. I'll try to find a wet day. Yeah to do it or a day that it's going to rain right after yeah. I've been in or whatever. Um, I think that was the biggest thing that helped me last year in the swamp was when I, I literally got access to that swamp. Right. And the next weekend it rained on Saturday. I got up during the rain. I put on some rain gear and I went and hung my cameras, trash, bag. trash bags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wore some trash bags. <laughs> and, uh, um, it uh, hung, hung all my cameras in the rain, and it was like in that day, mm-hmm. I had those bucks on camera, like within a couple hours after I walked out of there, you know. So, you know, I think the moral of the story here is, I think, Wilson, you make a good point. It's like if you're in a place where you can see <clears throat> deer, or if you can see your camera position from the road, like if you're hanging along a, a, like a food source or whatever, right, yeah. and it's visible by the road, right, just glass yeah. like utter oh, off
2: glass. Yeah, yeah. I I found I like to put my camera in the woods, most people, that's where they're coming. Kind of yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. most- I spent so much time my first year putting cameras like on a t-post out in the field, like face in the woods, so I could possibly get two or three different entries into the field to see. Oh, they're coming here, here, here. Mm-hmm. Now, if you put, but I could see that field from the road, so you could do that. By and I can and drive it. around. I could see the neighbor's field. I can drive around the block, see the farmer's field on the other side, and I have one camera in the woods. And you can just drive and yeah. spend time looking at. the deer out in the field and
1: that's what like my buddy tom and i that shed that i have that sheds that we found there's a big deer on this piece of property from the sheds that we found we anticipate he's if he's still alive he'll be there and he'll be a really good deer this year and he actually sent me some pictures the other night that we don't know if it's that particular buck but there's a really good deer that's in there because there's a field that's nearby there's some train tracks and he went out the glass and we've been meaning to hang cameras in there we just haven't had a chance to get out to do it but he was glassing the other night and saw a big deer and saw what he was doing. So that was confirmation that there's at least one good deer in there. And so now we're both kind of like, look, we're just got to wait till we have a good like rain day and go in and try to figure out where we can intercept them. What's that? Rain. Yeah. It (laughs) rained
3: every day for seemed like a month. And it was (laughs) like, Oh,
1: heat, heat. Yeah. No more rain, (laughs) just heat, you know? So that's our plan is like, you know, and it wasn't like we worked it out purposefully that way. It was just our schedules didn't jive.
3: And also like Wilson was saying, it was, if you can scout the visual, go out there. You know, we had them quick little rainstorms, or you know, it'll rain for a half hour. And deer are all out in the bean fields. The other yeah, night, we went to you know had to go pick up diapers and everything, and we took just a cruise around, and deer were everywhere. Seen that you know yep. that, that mega giant. Yep. I mean, every field had deer in it. Yep. I was like, and we're just driving, and I'm hunting long enough. I'm like, that's a big deer. You know, I don't really need to sit there, stop glass, and take pictures. I can just look at it, deer. I'm like. I could shoot him. You know, and no, I'm good with that. I don't care what right he looks like. He, 300 yards looks big. Just keep on driving. Don't slow your car, especially in Jersey. You slow your car at the air. like, I'm going to disappear.
2: And you go right, yeah, they go right back in the tracks. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Well, that, and, like, the guy behind you is like, hey, what's he looking at? Exactly. You know? yep. it's, uh...
2: Well, Wednesday morning, We it was cooler on Wednesday morning. Like, temp dropped. And so I got out in my car and drove around. There was deer everywhere. <laughs> well, like, that's late the other morning because people, I'm sorry, go. Ahead. Sunrise has been so yeah. early. I'm not getting up at four to go drive around and see deer feed i guess you don't want to bed enough you're not sick for it that's right (laughs) sick (laughs) sick for it but the other day it was cool when they were still out so we drove around it was like yeah i saw a couple deer yeah i saw a
1: couple deer (laughs) yeah i think that's one thing that people overlook too is uh and i didn't think about it until i heard someone saying it reminded me of is that you know the the weather patterns don't just work during hunting season. Mm -hmm. You know, the weather, weather pattern changes before and after storm. Yeah. It's not like
2: September deer go, Oh, let's live by the weather weather now. It's all here.
1: Right. Exactly. So it's like, you know, for going out and looking at fields, it's like if you're trying to prioritize some of your time or whatever, it's like, you might not want to do it like today when it's going to be 90 something degrees at like eight
3: o'clock. I bet you if we go on Instagram right now, you'll see everybody setting up cameras and checking cameras in this heat wave.
2: Right, sweating it up and it up. deer work. Hashtag yeah.
1: hashtag heat stroke. <laughs> like, yeah. well, my neighbor my
2: neighbor the other day said, I haven't seen any fawns. But he's driving around in the middle of the day. Yeah. And I'm like, it's ninety degrees out. You yeah. think you're gonna see a fawn? Do you just like be outside running yeah, around no. in the field. Yeah. So. <laughs> Direct
1: sunlight. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. So that is a little bit about summer pattern, but more about uh talking about, you know. Trail camera etiquette, if you yes. will, for the... Let uh,
3: it do its job. You bought it for a reason. Let it do its job. Give it time. Let her
1: soak. That's right. All right, we'll move on to the next clip. Yeah. All right, this next uh, tidbit is from our buddy uh, Ben Harshine. That's right, I said tidbit. Who says that? <laughs> uh, this next tidbit is from our uh, buddy Ben Harshine of Hunterra Maps and also of uh, White Tall Properties. And what he's talking about here, t- really two things, is uh, uh hunting benches... But more specifically, hunting benches in relationship to how the thermals are going to work. And mature mature bucks. bucks. Yeah, Yeah, how they're they're going to use them. So uh, let's listen to this and then we'll discuss. Deer, of course, like to use benches, but bucks will usually have a, a, or mature bucks will usually have uh, a, what some folks who I talk to refer to as like, a buck trail that is maybe 30 yards, 40 yards above that bench, because they don't really want the social activity of being around the does and the fawns that are using that bench, but they want to be up above them in the morning to catch the thermals to see if there's any hot does using that bench.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So if anybody listening that doesn't know what a thermal is, essentially whenever the sun rises in the morning, no matter how cold it is or how warm it is, when the sun rises, it heats up the atmosphere. And whenever the atmosphere is heat heats up, uh, by nature that air current can go uphill literally go go up and, and rise on the other hand whenever that sun drops down over the horizon the air starts to cool getting ready for the night that air and that current drops downhill so it, it falls um, when you're hunting the side of the hill you really need to pay attention to that because like say you're set up on a bench well if you're if you're hunting, from uh, if you're if you're hunting a specific trail in the morning and you know that that sun is going to be heating up the, the air currents I mean aside from what the wind is doing the, the thermals are going to be playing into this as well so if you're off the side of a hill chances are you're not getting as drastic of a wind or as heavy of a wind as you would at the top of a ridge so those thermals are going to be playing a, an important role in this and, and as that sun is heating up the atmosphere you're on if you're hunting a trail that's let's just say right in the middle of a ridge to keep it simple you're on the top side of that of that trail you're you're uphill from that because that that air current is going to be traveling uphill and anything on that deer trail that's right below you is not going to be able to smell you on the other hand if you're hunting a bench on the evening you want to be on that lower you want to be on that the edge of that bench downhill a little bit so you can still get a shot at the trail but whenever that sun is is dropping down over the horizon and and that that air is cooling. It's it's heavier and it's dropping downhill. And and you're going to have a better chance of not letting your scent creep across that bench because it's dropping down behind you. All
1: right. So we heard Ben talk a little bit about mature bucks, thermals, and hunting benches, which is which is interesting because I've been reading this this book for those have been following on on Instagram uh, and like yeah, reading, <laughs> learning, getting learned, it. Um, learned. And it's uh past tense. Yeah, learned (laughs) I stopped doing that a long time ago. Um but no, he was you know, talking about hunting, you know, hunting for mature bucks using benches and how the thermals are going to play into that. And, you know, as I had mentioned, you know, referencing uh how there's usually a main bench which you know you're Year and a half old bucks, two-year-old bucks might be traveling as long as well as does, fawns, etc. And then there's usually another less defined trail bench that the mature bucks will use to be able to scent check, especially during the the rut. They'll also use it just to avoid social pressure in general. Um, But what has been your experience? I mean, let's talk about the thermals. I mean, Ben kind of did a good job of explaining what those are. Um, But in relationship to hunting benches, because benches, I think people look at and go, you know, I'm going to hunt a bench, but it's probably one of the more challenging terrain features to hunt just based on thermals and how the wind is going to react with thermals and what that's going to do to your, your perceived wind direction. When you go in looking at your, when you're looking at your wind right. (laughs) And what is actually happening in your tree when you actually get in there. Right. So I guess just talk to me a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. Like listening to that, my take on, on that, uh, benches and thermals is, you know, as most people, you know, as he explained, Bench is a flat spot on the side of a hill. You know, um, it just funnels deer movement. Because and it
1: doesn't it, need to be that big. Yeah. I mean, we're not looking for, like, something, yeah, a four-wheeler path. It could it be
3: two-foot be... two wide. You yeah. know, it could be any anything that's not angular-based. angular, angular based. It's kind of flat. Right. Deer's going to walk on it just for ease of walking. And those are high-traffic areas for the most part. All kinds of animals, you know, bears, deer, coyotes. It's, just, uh, it's a traffic zone. And... Mature deer will usually ride above it, ride below it, and maybe it's a safety thing because it's a little thicker cover, you know, mm. up and below it, or they just don't want to be bothered by, mm. you know, people, kind of like me, just avoid human contact at all costs. <laughs> right. You know? um, but they'll just ride, ride high in the morning because you got the thermals, you know, as he did a good explanation of the thermals in the morning, they're going to rise. Right. Um, as soon as the day, day gets light, there's a thermal action as it's heating the atmosphere. It doesn't necessarily need to heat the the valley floor for the thermal pool to actually happen. There's thermal action is going to happen, no matter what. You know, some days will be stronger than others. You know, some days it'll be almost non-existent. But right. These deer, they just they live and die, in the mountains live and die by the thermals. Right. Um, the winds constantly changing, thermals are a little more consistent. I would say mm-hmm. if you got a Northwest wind coming over this ridge where his bench might be, that buck's been living there cruising that area for years, you know, you know numerous times. He knows what that thermal pool is going to do. Right. You know? So he feels safe traveling, you know, on these certain trails. Right. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't know how to use thermals to your advantage, it, it can make mountain hunting very frustrating. Right. Um, I learned, the hard way. Uh, as, as many of us do. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, a rough learning curve for me. And then once I kind of got the the whole thermal thing kind of down or basic understanding basic understanding of it. Um, Words. yeah, Learned. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Learned. It, it became easy to know what areas you can hunt and not hunt uh, and have your scent you know, go in a direction that's little more safe for you. Right. Um, that's going to, in the morning, you know, if you get near where the deer trail is, you get up high, thermal's going to pull your scent up. You don't have to worry about it. Right. You know, um. In the evening, get below the trail and that last hour light when most mature bucks are on their feet, it's going to pull, hopefully, you know, below. Not right. all the time, you right. know, because that wind will overpower thermal. Heavy right. winds will definitely overpower thermals, uh, even the strongest thermal pool. A 30 mile wind just wrecks everything. Right. <laughs> so- I mean,
1: I, I think hunting benches is one of those things where, at least what I, my perspective is, is I probably wouldn't hunt a bench unless it was the only place I thought I could intercept the deer of the caliber I was looking for mm-hmm. if I knew there was just some good deer around or if there was a particular buck I was trying mm-hmm. to target because with, it's, it's yeah. a tricky place to try to set up because – you're not going to really ever get a true wind, and you better have had experience in that location dropping milkweed to understand that when I get a south wind in the morning, of the morning, right, that that south wind is going to now create a northwest wind direction for me with the combination of the wind and the thermals. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's not like you pin it on a map, like because you can go hunt a saddle, for example, right, and saddles are dynamite, right? Within reason, especially if you can... Uh, saddle might be a bad example. Yeah, saddles can be tricky. Say so it can be tricky, but anything with elevation, maybe. Yes. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Like The closer you get to the top of a ridge...
3: right? More consistent if, things right. will be. And if, there,
1: if there's a saddle that's a really kind of... Uh, I guess a... What am I trying to say? Something that's not and super saddles,
3: significant. Saddles, we're, we're, Wilson, it's not something we put on a horse. It's actually <laughs> a it's feature in the mountains. <laughs> right? So yeah. it, it's if, if there's just... A, <laughs> If there's just a...
1: yark, <laughs> kind of teeing you up for that one. Um, if it's a very you know hard to kind of discern saddle where you're not getting a big change in elevation, just enough that it's pushing the and, traffic and, in an area, then you can kind of work it because you can get up on a higher kind of a higher piece of
3: yeah. it sp- peel this back a little bit. And benches, if the bench isn't in the upper one third. You know, top. Yeah. I don't mess with it because it's I mean, the very further down you go, the wind is yes. just the worst. It's it inconsistent. Gets. Yeah, and big wide benches that are 100 yards wide, I don't mess with because it doesn't necessarily funnel deer movement any which way or another. And not all benches or like all terrain features are created equal. That bench is on a you know an area where predominant northwest wind, but it's on the wrong side, mm-hmm. you know, the windward side. Yeah, I don't really mess with it. And the odds are, if that wind does shift, that deer use that. it might happen but it's for me it's a it's a a low probability and benches are great scraping lines Mm -hmm. you know there's a i think a time and place to to hunt certain benches usually a a bench in the upper one-third will be littered with scrapes you know um that's a good time to hunt it but outside of the rut benches can be real tough uh because unless it's near a food source or or known buck bedding you know or even like doe bedding you know but not all benches are created equal, and yeah. if you find a good a hidden, I call them hidden benches. Most turning features I hunt are hidden. You look at a map, Can't you don't see really it. see it, yeah. Because yeah. I've found some benches. It's you look at the you know top of my break, or even a saddle. How's it not on here? Because you're looking at it, you can make, you can see it, and it's like, I guess it didn't. The measurement and tactics didn't meet right. up with it, but they're they're there and they're wide, and you know, you get a bench that's, you know, ten foot wide. Most of them won't show up on a on a top of map, you know? Right. And they're they're the ones you want in the uh, any type of hidden terrain features. That's where you're gonna get more your know, right. older deer activity. Right.
1: You had a question earlier, Wilson.
2: I don't know. Well you touched it. on a little bit is when does a will a thermal beat out a wind or vice versa. Like what is too much wind where the thermal's not gonna come into play? And then is it just a wash? Like you're not gonna
3: hunt that anyways because it's well if it's if it's if you're up high enough you know say the thermal's gonna in the morning gonna pull up if mean, you're in the upper one-third and you're 25 feet up you know and that wind's blowing you know you're on the leeward side you don't necessarily need the thermal because your scent's getting pushed down into the valley and and, and just going off never never land
1: down below where any deer is gonna where
3: yeah you wouldn't have this- Yeah, it's gonna be so dispersed to it but people <coughs> yeah. don't like wind speed a lot of people have talked about it. In, in my view of wind speed, the more you know, heavier the wind is, your scent gets dispersed at at a faster rate. So it's a instead of being a small cone, it's a huge cone. Well, your scent molecules are dispersed more. So if a deer might catch that, it's like, well, it's not that strong. Yeah, you know? it's diluted. It's that <clears throat> that five mile an hour, ten mile an hour wind where just enough to you know maintain that that scent stream to go further down down the hill or down, you know where you don't want it to go. That's what bothers me the most. Like a twenty fifteen minute hour winds, I see a lot of deer on those days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be honest with you. I don't I don't know why. Windy days in the mountains have always been good to me. Right. The calm still days, it's like deer just don't move. <clears throat> right. Um, be it that safety or the swirling wind, the deer are just like, nah, I'm good. I'll just eat my stick here and wait till dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got busted so many times. I hunted the wind, I played the wind
2: and I was getting blown at nearly every time. And it wasn't until I was watching some YouTube elk videos where they're like, oh, no, the thermals are changing, that I started to look into it. I tried to buy milkweed online, and I was like, where do you buy milkweed at? And then I was like, oh, you find it or out. Find- <laughs> ATF knocked on the door? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't grow up in the woods. or
3: um, Also, because my dad, I remember at, when I first started hunting, he told about thermals in the morning in, in a tree stand. Your scent's going to go up. In the evening, it's going to go down. So we, my dad just get real aggressive with her tree stand placement in the morning, you know, or even our, our little ground blind setup because it's like your scent's going to go high Once mm-hmm. that sun breaks, it's going up. and In the evening, it's going to go down. So we just you know, set up accordingly. And I was, you know, pounded that, you know, over and over and over again in my head. And then as I started hunting the mountains, it was understanding thermals was a, Easier, you know, rough mm-hmm. learning curve, you know, for the t- type of terrain, the you know, steep hills. Mm-hmm. But I understood thermals at a, at a early age hunting, and it, it did definitely pay off because thermals are everywhere. Yeah. You know, you look at, in a field, low spot. Yeah. That's where well, most. Well, if
1: you watch a deer come out, right, or even just glass now, yeah. like go out and glass.
3: Most bigger deer go in those low spots.
2: Yeah. yeah Everything they, pulls out. You've, I mean, you've. Yep. No, that, I killed my buck this year. There was, I don't know, two mile an hour wind, and it was a little burst. swirly. I yes. <laughs> But you dropped a milkweed out of my tree and it went about five feet out and then just went straight to the ground. I mean, it was, sun was setting and that buck came right to that and that's when he busted me it all worked out in the end. But literally the milkweed went out and then just went like an anchor. Yep. It went straight down. (laughs) Well,
1: my learning experience initially with thermals where it's like I knew what they were, but I was really unsure of how to effectively kind of use them and when they would screw me and when they could help me. Right. And it was listening to some stuff that Dan had said in the past, and I was in Ohio, killed killed that deer, and I couldn't figure out that why. deer by the
2: one on the wall next to us. Yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah, people For are viewers at home, <laughs> yeah,
1: the um, ready listeners at home. Yeah, the uh, I was set up at the close to the top of this this ridge, and what I realized later, well, there was actually a ridge top funnel that was right behind me between two d- two doe bedding areas, which is why the deer were. Bucks were constantly moving through there. But there was also a bench that was below me. And so every morning I would see deer, and they would come from like what should have been my down – like they should have been Mm -hmm. busting me. But I was 20-ish, 25-ish feet up in the tree, and those morning thermals with the wind just ripped my scent right up over top of the ridge, and it was landing some however far down the other backside of the ridge, away from where all the deer were coming from, to where it's like I was completely – I was bulletproof yep. and I couldn't figure out how it was working. And I finally stopped and thought about it after I killed that deer. And I was like, how did I just never ever get winded in that
3: and spot? You, I mean, we've all been busted by those does. Oh yeah. The wind's good. But what you're, even with milkweed you, or any type of wind flutter, you put it out, you know, it might go this way. Oh, I'm kind of good, but it, you know, 50, 60 yards away, it might loop back around. Something might be causing good go yep. down there. Cause yep. you think the wind's per- I've had bucks do that. I've, I've had bucks come in the mountains coming right to me and all of a sudden they had to stop and just like backtrack and go the other way and you're like and you're pulling out and everything seems good mm-hmm. but 50 60 yards away it's not you know odds are my scent somehow got over there or somebody else's scent he like, he knew something wasn't right right you know in the marsh it'll do that flat ground swamps water well and anytime
1: it, you're hunting close to water you I mean, the thermals it's like it's you got to pay that was my kick in the in the groin last year of hunting that swamp was trying to figure that out, you know,
3: um, which unsuccessfully, you yeah, I've been busted, uh, a big half rack on a uh, hunting swamp, water swamp and a, you know, high ground in the evening, this big half rack. I mean, I would have shot him, but he was a monster Right, broke off. He's coming right to me. I'm like, this is going to happen. First time ever in there <clears throat> paddled in, you know, right. Paddling before paddling was cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, and he seen the the Hang canoe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> running gun, running uh, gun. <laughs> but he seen the canoe. And he stopped and he's looking, and he took like two more steps, and all of a sudden he just didn't blow, just just backed up. I never could understand, but giant body of water, and where I was kind of sitting, and I go back there now, and it the us hour, light, the the, the Milky and the, the wind flares goes right to the water. So he caught by scent. So explain that. Why is the water? Why does the water change that thermal so much? It maintains the heat temperature yeah. uh, from the sun. You know, like uh, you—it's
2: know, like, like a big solar panel. Yeah,
3: basically. Yeah. You know, you get it with tidal flats, with mud, yeah. any type, anything that can absorb the, the the sun's energy. And the shallower the water, yes. You know, the more it's. And rivers are a different story because yeah. the water's constantly it's moving. moving. Yeah, yeah. rivers—you don't get as much. The thermal pool—it's more of a, a swirling action because well, of the motion of the river. The wind and everything going down it. I always liked
1: hunting. There was a a stream, a trout stream that ran through our one family property. I used to love hunting down by. Aside from it being like crazy cold down by the water, it was always like a good like ten degrees colder down there. Uh, But I always loved hunting with my setup, with my back up next to it, because it was just sucking my wind right into it and shooting it down down the stream. And you know, nothing could really come from behind me. You know, and. I was pretty much bulletproof yeah. in that setup yeah. um, which was nice but i think at that point greg just broke my chair and uh <laughs> and uh, i think we covered uh benches and thermals is there anything else you want to add greg or are you or are we these good these chairs on the are great these chairs are great <laughs> actually i do have one more question so hunting a, hunting a bench right yes. with thermal challenges all that stuff right you always want to kind of morning you want to set up above evening you want to sit yes. down below to your earlier point, if it's not at least three-quarters of the way up or the top third, yes. like, you're really not going to mess with yes. it, right? Because the lower you get, the more the you're going to get screwed is. on the wind. Um, so how would you set up a location on on a bench? Like, I, what would be your,
3: your I never come from below. And I know that goes against some people's teachings and readings and writings. But uh, I always come high. Mm-hmm. If i got to take the long way to get there, then so be. I like dropping down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man yeah come Milk <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah come drop down right to the tree basically you know I find wherever my trees are I how I come down that bench or, or the point or whatever I'm, I'm hunting specifically and I beeline right for the, for the tree use GPS right. now with Onyx I pretty much set waypoints. that it takes me right to that tree right and I try to not cross the deer trail and if I do I gotta cross the deer trail getting to that. I make sure I can sit or uh, shoot at said crossing because that's happened to me quite a few times where you cross deer, turn the wrong spot, you're over here, and deer comes and's like, I'm good. I'm going to choo-choo on out of here. Right. But yeah, always high uh, in the evening. I'm the worst mountain evening hunter, so I can't really give any advice on that. Right. It's <laughs> so, nice. Nice. Love so, the right. love the candor. Yeah. I'm, I'm being dishonest. Yeah. Right. Morning's my thing. Evening not so much. Evening, not so much.
1: Yeah, I mean that's I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. You know, people are hunting benches as like one of their primary yes. kind of hunting if spots. The, it's like I think there's two big mistakes, right? There's one is that you're hunting the mountains. You're hunting the mountain, which is a challenge. Right? First mistake. First mistake. Yeah. So there's really three. Yeah. There's that. And then there's, you know, the fact that the thermals in the wind are gonna play hell on you in terms of trying to get something consistent. Yeah. Right. Because you're and, unless you're near the very top and of even it. that,
3: it's still in the morning because if you get there <clears> super early like me, you still have some thermals kind of coming down. So there is a there is a time where even when you set up in the evening, well, your thermals doesn't, doesn't are going like, up.
1: It's not like you snap your fingers and it happens, yes. right?
3: So it's like when you're setting up, that's not happening. You have to take that into consideration where you think majority or or where because if you're hunting the bench and for a buck and you get best, busted by those two or three times, you know, something's not right. Yourself, you need to make a change because you're right. not going to see that buck no matter what happens. Right? Um, but you're going to set up in the morning, and if you the wind's not strong enough, you know, as usually it's not that first, you know the last hour of darkness, that wind seems to just stop. <laughs> right, so yeah. still, and you pull up the milkweed, it's like, it's like an anchor going right down the hill. You're like, yeah. you know, but you know, you're going to rely because thermal is going to happen. So you're going to, you know, roll a little bit of a gamble, you know, and the thermal, well, you're to playing, to you're up. playing the long game, right? Yes. You're,
1: you're, you know that's an instant where if you do have trail cameras out right and you've had any on that bench and you understand roughly what time deer are going to start moving through that general area it can work out to your benefit but if it's an area you don't have a lot of history with you quite possibly could be screwing your entire hunt before you even get started
3: and some spots where you think is the wind's perfect thermal's perfect you sit there and it's just awful it's all there's something causing it to shift be it you know pine trees or a big rock bluff changing it not not all benches can be huntable or right. certain spots can be huntable it's just you know save them for rainy days <laughs>
1: right save this for blowing like a blowout day yeah whatever.
3: or you know 50 mile wind days but then i'm not spending any time in a tree i'm i'm on the ground <laughs> right still hunting yeah
1: yeah nice all right well i think we covered uh benches and thermals thoroughly so we will move on to the next segment all right. This next segment is with our buddy uh, Steve Flores. He is a he's known as being a mountain buck hunter in West Virginia, and uh, he's going to talk a little bit about the uh, the difference between you know mountain buck hunting and uh, hunting out in uh, Midwest type places and where deer uh, like to bed and, and those type of ter- uh, that type of terrain. So let's listen to the segment, and then we will discuss. You know what's the what's the biggest difference that you that you kind of have learned over the years or noticed over the years of you know between hunting heavy ag lands like the Midwest you know whether it's the Ohio's mm-hmm. Illinois's uh, you know getting into Iowa or what have you versus hunting more mountainous terrain or hunting mountain bucks specifically.
6: Yeah, well for me it you know and I Bill Winky I, I'm sure you're familiar with him. I grew up reading his articles and he was he still is kind of uh, you know my my writing hero. Um, right, I love his work, and I so so as I was younger and earlier in my career, I tried to take everything that Bill and all these other writers was were were put in print. I tried to apply that to what I did, and it never kicked it up to work.
3: It
2: right. just
6: never would work, and it finally dawned on me one day that hey, it's 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 never going to work because it, the, the 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 puzzle pieces aren't the same. And the biggest thing that that I realized was. You know, for for most of the Midwestern guys, they have a point A, and a point B. They have bedding and feeding, and you can pretty much guess where the deer are going to feed, where they're going to bed. I mean, right. you might have a food a food you may you may have a food plot that's fairly large. It might be a, you know the size of a football field, but you know that deer is coming to that food plot. Right, he's going to be there, and you should basically. And then, and I don't say this to to be judgmental on mid, Midwestern hunters i mean you know they, i'm sure that there's difficulties in that too but they're you know they're limited to the size of that food plot and what spot that deer's going to come out on and they basically know where the deer's bedding and where he's going to approach from and the trick is either get in between those get in between a and b or just pick the right corner of the food plot that the buck's going to come out on for that evening whereas you know for us they could, it, I like to think of it more as like a shotgun pattern. You know, there's a lot of places that the deer will tend to bed. But I've bumped deer in the craziest places. I've bumped deer <laughs> everywhere in the mountains. Right. I've bumped them in you know the really thick stuff. I've bumped them in the wide open spot. I mean, mm-hmm. they just they, they they bed they bed just about anywhere, and they can feed just about anywhere. If there's no acorns on the ground, they'll just browse on anything. So. The problem, you know, problem I always faced was how do you hunt a buck, a mature buck or any buck that, that when he gets up out of that bed and you're not really sure where he's bedding at, he can go in any direction to find food. to me, it was just, you know, how do you hunt a deer like that? Right. And that was what I found was the biggest difference between what the Midwestern guys are doing and what we're doing. It's. It's A and B. You know, there's no A and B for us. It's it's all scattered. It's A through Z. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's A through Z for us. I mean, that buck gets up, or that doe, or whatever. I mean, it, it can go around the point away from you. you. Can go down the hill away from you. Go uphill from you. You just never know. You know, unless uh, there's somebody out there that has a secret that, that I don't know about. I, I've never been able to predict exactly where a buck's going to go when he gets up.
1: All right, so we are talking mountain deer versus ag deer, where they like to bed, and in that type of of terrain. So, you know, I think, I guess, how do we how do we frame this this one up? It's you know, well, I think a lot of us, like, we have a experience just sitting here of kind of hunting in a lot of both, right? Because Wilson was just saying as we were listening to this segment, kind of getting our bearings about what the urban. topic was. Yeah, like Wilson and I hunt a fair amount of you know suburbia, you know just by the proximity Burps. of where we live. Yeah, yeah, the burbs, <laughs> burbs. You know where we have, you know, some ag out past where I live, out more you know closer to where Wilson lives. There's a you know a fair amount of ag, and then you've got a lot of small wood lots and like developments and stuff like that. And so you are really have you know deer can really only funnel into one place, you know, which is not midwestern but like similar structure their structure right to where needs structure structure is good yes (laughs) to you know the inverse of that is a lot of what you hunt greg and what i hunt whenever i do some traveling or whatever is just large unbroken blocks of timber with very little egg and the hunting is much different the deer density is much different how they're going to travel is much different um and just poses a lot you know a lot more challenges so yeah. yes talk a little bit about your experience cuz i know you've also hunted like smaller blocks as well so just kind of talk a little bit about your experience with yeah both of
3: what's, i mean listening to that little clip like steve talked about how the articles in the midwest don't necessarily translate to you know other types of terrain outside of those things and that's what really kind of you know caught my attention because right. i we're all guilty of that you'd read the magazine articles and like man this is gonna this set up gonna, gonna be the great. reason why i kill a big deer yeah, and then you know, you know because yeah. if it doesn't, doesn't you know, translate it does translate to you know big blocks of unbroken timber yeah you know so i mean i've hunted both but i, I usually go with larger blocks mm-hmm. of uh timber because well in my opinion if you can see a deer on a, a five thousand acre piece of public odds are he's spending 70 80% of his time on that said block. You guys in these little urban spots, yeah, you, know, you might only have, you know, 25 acres to hunt. you get one picture of a deer, he's not really sleeping there. You know, he's elsewhere, so he, it's hard to kill him or or pattern him on your little piece of property. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if it's harder. I think it's just different, stati- well, statistically yeah. speaking, cuz he's not spending as much of his time it, yeah, on here there, unless you're, you're,
1: like, literally hunting his bed. Yeah, like, right. you're, he, and, he's and, there yeah. once a
3: week, so you got to time your, you know, you got to get lucky, where, yeah. you know, I have 5,000 acres to hunt, well, if I see him over here, and you could go there. Yeah, and then, uh, oh, I, there's another doe bedding area down here, I can, might see him, that same deer. Right, well, both,
1: know? I mean, Wilson, you and I both had this experience last year, where it was, you were hunting hook, right, big deer yeah. that you were after, and you you know you have a specific time frame to hunt him, because you have one area that you have access to to hunt him and whenever that period ends, I forget which week it is, but mm-hmm. you know it to like a T, like he after gone. you hit this date, he gone. Like you don't, yeah. you're not going to see him again until the next year. If he makes it same thing happened to me last year in the swamp, which was big deer, first part of October, middle of October hit, not the lull. Cause I don't really buy into that. I was close to their beds. Like as Greg and I were talking about in previous podcasts and just, you know, offline when you and I were having phone calls, I was like, "Man, I'm hunting these swamps. What the hell am I doing wrong?" You know, you were like, "You're all over his bed <laughs> yark, yark. Yeah, um, you're like, "You, you, you already know where he's where he's bedded <laughs> when he wasn't showing up." At that point, he was yeah. transitioned to somewhere else because I was on top of his bed. You know, and at that point, I don't yeah. know where he was, and so I couldn't hunt him any longer. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely benefits to hunting larger, larger blocks, but. You know, I think in the smaller places, the one thing that we do have the benefit of, they have a lot more limited places to bed. So you can start to figure out where they're bedding, you know, where it's like, you know, here's a fence row that's in between this house and this field. Like probably a really good area for a buck to bed, right? In the mountains, though, different game, right, for us like where they'll bed. And you were even mentioning, you know, I think this goes back to even what we were talking about in the last DIY session we were doing, which is hunting isolated bedding off doe bedding, right, where it's, you know, in the mountains, does are going to bed, as you were mentioning, you know, almost anywhere. Wherever Mm -hmm. they get tired, they're just going to lay down. You know, when you have smaller blocks, it's like you'll know doe bedding exists over here, doe bedding exists over here, which means if I'm going to hunt isolated bedding, these are probably the areas for isolated buck bedding around it, right? When you get into the mountains or larger blocks, it's like now all of a sudden it's like, well, where are the does bedding? Anywhere. Exactly. Because right, they can feed anywhere. So right, what's exactly. your experience been like with
3: with that? Well, they will pretty much bet anywhere in the mountains. Uh, even just flat big woods. Just mm-hmm. flat big woods. You kick them up, like Steve was saying, in random places. You're like, wow, are these deer bedding here. Usually it's food-based because does are constantly you know, changing their bedding you know, right. based on food. Bucks are a little more selective, you know, especially older bucks, I should say. Right. A little more selective where they bed. You know, outside of the rut, you know, they 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 have the little areas away from all human contact. You know? Right. <laughs> and they 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 will bed off those does. You know, late October into, you know, usually middle November I find, and then that's for me in Jersey. Late November is when gun season hits, and then everything's you know out mm-hmm. the window at that point. You know? Right. But, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna say, you know, what for Wilson? It's like, what's you know from like a, from a small block perspective because I know you've gone north to you know some other other states and stuff to, to hunt as well you know it's like so what has your experience been Yeah, when I grew up I'll hunt big woods
2: when I grow up, I'll when, I hunt I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> when I hit 30 I'll hunt yeah. woods <laughs> no for me there's places where I've on property that I can hunt that I've never been into because it's a small patch of thick woods where it I mean small like you're talking an acre right where you'll sit and you just, I, I'm like, how did all these deer fit in there? Because it's their one spot in between this housing development yeah. and then this farm that they have kids that ride their quads around all day. So like the deer will pile into there and you will hunt that specific overgrown patch right. because that's where they are. Right. Like they're not going to, even on those hedgerows, because of the pressure of kids on their dirt bikes or on their quads right. or dogs in the neighborhood they don't they don't mess with that unless,
3: unless
2: it's a, out. yeah <laughs> <laughs> unless it's like <laughs> when the rut hits you'll see bucks hitting those hedgerows in the middle of the fields in the middle of the day that's where they're yeah. bedded because they can catch both sides right but it's so isolated so i i have had the same route to get to my stand in this one property i'll never change it because i know there's
3: no deer there ever and that's, right. you, uh, you know, with, with important, you know, your entry, bumping deer mm-hmm. out, you know. and In the mountains, it's rough, you know, farm country. Because well, you don't urban. know where we're at. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you, you usually have a, a better idea of where they usually will bed 90% of the time. Yep. You know, I have you know, I probably blow more deer, you know, uh, in the morning going in, you know, early in the big woods, you know, flat big woods even in the mountains than anywhere else. You know, I got some small little you know five six hundred acre pieces it's all public but little wood lots more ag you pretty much know where the deer are going to bed yeah where they're mm-hmm. going and i very rarely bump deer out of there but it's yeah. those big woods where like those are just i just don't want to walk anymore and it seems like they just like bed right off the cart road and or not even even off the cart road just in a random place you know right. you're like why are you here you know? right so when we
2: when i hunt a buck on that farm it all depends on what the wind was that night before because then i can go oh he probably bedded in
3: Yes, a or b that says isolated yep. beddings we were, we were right. talking about
1: and i think the thing too is to mention like especially and i know steve was specifically talking about larger tracks yes. and, and and mountain and mountain bucks but we've covered mountain bucks yes. a lot or mountain hunting a lot just in general the segments that we've been doing because that's a lot of what yeah. you have experience in greg and i've hunted it out of state and that's kind of how i grew up is more hunting you know elevation but in, and what i'm learning with some of these smaller blocks when we start talking about isolated bedding like the traditional knowledge was, you know, for me, and I learned this maybe it was from like Jeff Sturgis or Jeff or Jake Ealinger or one of those guys, or maybe I read it somewhere, it might have been Bartilla or whoever. But they were basically saying, you know, you find where does are betting and it's say it's on a farm somewhere and it's like, you know, two to three hundred yards beyond that, the next section of best betting is where you'll find the buck a buck bed, most likely. It's not foolproof, but that's a good place to start, right? right? as long as the habitat's right, and stuff like that, because they went away from the social pressure, all the stuff that we've mentioned already. And so you kind of use that rule of thumb, like that distance, right? But whenever you're in these smaller lots, like you don't have that distance between, right? So isolated betting for a buck isn't necessarily going to be like that 200, 300, 400, 500 yards away to the next best betting. It could literally be like the next hedgerow over, you know what I mean? Because that's all the further away that he can get, right? And so the bucks on those smaller properties too are pretty cagey as far as they're so used to people being around it's not that they're not afraid right because i think that's a misunderstanding people are like oh you're hunting like urban or suburban areas with small woodlots like it's like how are you not killing deer like by the by the piles you know it's like we're not double longer that's why we're not double longer (laughs) right but it's like they're pretty cagey because they understand like they're around people so often that they're you mentioned it in a previous podcast we did, Greg, where you said, you know, they're one of their best defense mechanisms that people don't think about is just don't move. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they get so used to being around people that they will lay what I've at least experienced that much tighter than they would in another, in another setting. Like, so big bucks will let you walk pretty close mm-hmm. to them. And if they feel safe, like they're not going to move because not moving, they understand is one of their best yes. ways to stay alive. Right.
4: Staying alive. <laughs>
1: right. But. Even in those smaller properties, like I feel like it's even more so. Like they're even more—I won't say tolerant, but they have more nerve to let you get even closer yeah. because they don't have a whole lot of other places to, to to take
2: off to. Well, and this is a little off topic, but it's—I think it's a misconception that because I'm hunt, you hunt in an urban area, deer are used to human smell, right? Because okay, if I'm if that deer's betting fifteen yards off a house and a homie comes out to barbecue. He knows that. Is he wearing a a claw mask? Yeah. (laughs) That's fine. We don't say that. (laughs) But as soon as that deer leaves that vicinity of that house, it's like all bets are off. He's still a a deer. He's still a deer. You
1: know what I mean? Yeah. So it's uh, the one thing I did want to make mention, because I think one thing that applies to what Steve was talking about is something that I'm trying to reconcile or figure out is, you know, in going to Iowa this year, the place that I'm hunting is kind of both pieces jammed together because right, I'm hunting a big tract of public land that is completely surrounded by
3: agriculture. Where's this at? Can you tell everybody? No, I can't oh, tell okay. you. It's like a, it's a, it's one of the states where everybody's going. Where's that one state? Where's that one state? I'm not okay. sure. Uh, uh, it's Pinky's out, right? Is yeah, that,
1: Pinky's out. Like, Oregon, Oregon. Oregon. Yep. <laughs> um, but that's the thing that I'm trying to f- figure out is just. Because it's a big tract of public land, it's it's similar to what we're talking about, which is that does can pretty much bed area. I mean, I've had the fortune of John lives there; he hunts this piece of public, you know, to a, to a degree, a, a couple areas of it, and so he does have an understanding where does do like to bed, you know, and no secret it's in big ag land, so it's close to it's close to ag. But I mean, some of these tracts are five thousand acres, six thousand acres, or whatever, and literally they could be anywhere, right? And so. I typically go the opposite way of agriculture in Pennsylvania. Like if there's an ag field somewhere and if it's public, I try not to be too close to it because I know that that's going to attract people, right? And that's going to be where people are at, right? It's going to get the most pressure. So how do I get away from, away from that? And so trying to remind myself of like, I'm hunting in a state with like super low pressure. So it is okay to try to get close to food because you're not going to get dark beard as often being close to food in Iowa as you would in Pennsylvania, in November, right? True, true. So I'm trying to figure out like what my approach would be. You know, I guess let me tee it up to you there, Mr. Litzinger. Like if you were going there, knowing that it's a big piece I of would. public land, you wouldn't go there. You know, no. I would. Suck,
3: 30, suck 30, I, 30 hours, I'm going to hunt elk and mule deer. Sorry, right? <laughs> sorry for anybody lives in Iowa. That's just my take. Well, that's just, a, that's a well, long way to drive to kill a deer. <laughs> right. Well, just <laughs> just just pretend. Yeah, right. Pret- right. Pretend, pretend I, I I'd hunt them the same way. You know, mature deer are mature deer. They mm-hmm. they 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 do the same things, pressured high pressure areas versus standard pressure areas. You know, maybe out in the my tactics here that that I use dude that on three, four year old deer, they're probably what, seven, eight year old deer doing right. in Iowa. So yeah. I really wouldn't change a thing because that would go against my, my comfort zone. And if I'm driving thirty hours, I'm gonna hunt how I know how to hunt. Right. And uh hunt my terrain you know pick them points where I, I think uh off of top of map or Google where I think I can catch a buck cruising especially in November you go to yeah. November you know it's dough bedding all right where are, are large tracks of of doe's gonna be you know and I would concentrate on that that area like I wouldn't change anything no um I'd still get out there probably three hours before first light and stay you know an hour after dark you know sit right. all day i I It'd be a terrible, you know. You you wait two years, to get that you know that license or that tag. Right. You go out there and you're. Like, I'm gonna try new tactics. Right. To use what works, man. Because that's, that's that's it's gonna. I th- you're comfortable with it, so you're right. not, you're not gonna make mistakes or, or do dumb things. Right. You know, for the, for the most part. I mean, we all do pretty dumb things when it comes to deer, but. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, but we I, were
1: talking about that in the drive back from the archery range. Yeah. Of you know, the one thing I was noticing just looking at Topo, yeah. you know, is that there's it's the saddles and stuff aren't nearly as defined as they are hunting hill country here. And, and you're going to find here.
3: I was popular. You know, the standard saddles, you know, even here in PA and New York and even Jersey saddles are blown up by hunters. Oh yeah. That's what everybody gravitates towards the saddle, saddles and points. So I, you know, I talk on the, the, the hunting public podcast, deep cuts. Mm-hmm. If they find any type of deep cut or anything, that's going to alter deer movement mm-hmm. outside of the typical, you know, Something, be, be, you know, uh, an overgrown field that was cut or a cornfield that was cut, like something that's going to just funnel deer movement and, and give me a, a chance to, you know, capitalize on something. That's what I would focus on. Right, you know things that the average person won't. You right, know, and that's just.
1: Well, even just even just you know where where hard edges and even soft edges kind of appear, right? So just changes in habitat. You look at you
3: the, now with Google and. Uh, a few other places, Iowa, I don't know if they have it on their map, you can, you would know, transition into January, mm-hmm. you know, you'll find those edges, you'll yeah. find those evergreens. That's, you know, there's a, you know, the soft slash hard edges that right. you don't see until, you know, it's, you know, January and you can see, you know, some cedars or some pine trees, right. you know, and then look at, you can even see some maps show you where oak trees are. Right. You can decipher what trees, what you know, by a satellite image. Use all that to your advantage. You know, if you got an isolated patch of oaks near, you know, uh, some pine trees or a thicket or overgrown field, uh, you know, might be some oak, oak horns. Oak, horns. oak I did said the, it again. You did that last. <laughs> <laughs> you did that like two podcasts <laughs> ago. Like I said, oak horns. Oak <laughs> oh, it's like right. raucous. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. I think that that's a probably good place to yeah. uh, to, <sighs> to shut this one down. And we'll move on oak to corns. the next segment. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Greg and Wilson for joining me. Be sure to give both of them a follow on Instagram. I, of course, need to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative of of those two things if you'd be able to do that for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down wing. And until next time, we'll see y'all.
5: November's on my
6: heels.
5: Makes me proud. Makes me steal. I could show you.